morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bongani in Washington. Today is Thursday, June the 9th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni says that his country has attained a middle-income status. Don't transport for the lower middle-income status is U.S. dollars 1036 we have now passed that figure. Congratulations. And UNICEF officials are calling on the international community to, in their words, widen its gaze from the war in Ukraine to prevent Somalia sliding into famine. This is needed today. We have in Somalia alone about 386,000 children who need treatment for life-threatening severe acute malnutrition. And the government of Kenya has launched a strategy to reform care for children. It includes a national plan of action to tackle online child sexual exploitation and abuse. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, UNICEF officials are calling on the international community to, in their words, widen its gaze from the war in Ukraine to prevent Somalia from sliding into famine. Addressing the media, the organization called for more resources to mitigate what it says is an imminent explosion of child death in the Horn of Africa. The Horn of Africa has been experiencing long periods without rainfall in what experts say is the worst drought spell in more than 40 years, killing crops and livestock. This is definitely one of the worst climate-induced emergencies that we have seen in the last 40 years. We have seen families who have lost their entire livelihoods. It is an area that is predominantly pastoralist, agro-pastoralist, and four failed rains meant that they have been unable to crop, to harvest. They've lost livestock that has died from lack of water. That is Rania Dagesh. She is UNICEF's Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa. She says that the drought, combined with the global rise in food and fuel prices, pushed up by the war in Ukraine, continues to have an impact on millions across the Horn of Africa, affecting mostly poor families. There's a significant outbreak of disease like cholera and measles and diarrhea taking place across the region. And this is synonymous with drought and malnutrition. It especially affects children who are already malnourished. The loss of livelihoods and safety is forcing children and families out of their homes and communities also increasing their risk of exploitation, abuse and violence, including gender-based violence. It is a desperate situation. UNICEF estimates that more children in Somalia are in urgent need of treatment for life-threatening malnutrition than in 2011, a year when famine killed hundreds of thousands of people. We have about 1.7 million children across Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia who require urgent treatment for severe acute malnutrition. This is needed today. And if I were to compare with the last time we had a famine in Somalia in 2010-2011, at this time 
340,000 children needed treatment. We are at least 40,000 above that today, which in itself tells you how desperate the situation is. Tagesh says that even though donor funding has been generous, it falls far short of the amount needed to adequately respond to the situation. A lot can be done. It just has to be done now because we're taking, in UNICEF, we're taking a no regrets policy, which means we are investing and scaling up our response in nutrition, in health, in water, in sanitation, and in social protection programs. We're appealing for 250 million for a life-saving drought response through this December. And we can turn it around because we have done it before. We're also grateful for the recent contributions from many of our donors, but it is not enough. We are only a third funded against what we need. We also need the international community to invest in the longer term resilience of these communities. Droughts are not going to stop because of our response today. It's a climate change crisis and one where the Horn of Africa finds itself in the center. That is UNICEF's Deputy Regional Director for Eastern and Southern Africa, Rania Dagesh. She spoke to me from Nairobi. Daybreak Africa continues. Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni says his country has attained a middle-income status. He says his government will continue to invest in agriculture and industrialization to improve citizens' livelihoods. President Museveni says that it is criminal for African countries to continue exporting raw materials. Reporter Mugume Davis Arwakarinji has more from Kampala. In his address to the nation Tuesday, President Yoweri Museveni said Uganda's economy stands at about 45.7 billion US dollars by the exchange rate method or 131 billion by the purchasing power parity or PPP system. He said Uganda has withstood the effects brought about by COVID-19 pandemic and is steadily growing, albeit at a slow pace. The entrance point for the lower middle income status is US dollars 1036. We have now passed that figure. Congratulations. An economy must, however, sustain this for two to three consecutive years to be declared a middle-income economy. Sarah Bidete, the head of NGO, Center for Constitutional Governance, disputes President Museveni's account. She says such will be reflected in people's way of living. When you look at the incomes of the people, the declining businesses, people losing jobs, increasing poverty, and the Bank of Uganda reports that only 1% of the population earns approximately $250 a month. Then it defeats one's understanding on how average Ugandans have attained a gross national income of $1,000. I think that is a naked lie. Mr. Seven says his government will support both intensive and subsistence agriculture, and to increase mechanized farming, such as use of solar-powered equipment for irrigation. He said one thing his government won't tolerate is export of raw material, either from agricultural produce or minerals. He calls it criminal. It is criminal for anybody to continue arguing for the continued export of raw materials in Africa 
when there is 90% more value in that product. Concerning the skyrocketing commodity prices, Mr. Museven said his government is working on increasing export substitutions. He says his government will not reduce on taxes or introduce subsidies because they negatively impact the economy. For VOA News, I am Ogume, Davis Rwakarinjini Kampala, Uganda. And still in East Africa, in Kenya, the government has launched a strategy to reform care for children. It includes a national plan of action to tackle online child sexual exploitation and abuse. The effort aims to accelerate the government's plans to guarantee safety and welfare of children, especially those subjected to crime and exploitation through social media. Moreno Jambo has more. In the first three quarters of 2021, Facebook flagged about 55 million pieces of content featuring child nudity and sexual exploitation. That's 20 million more than 2020's total of about 35 million. According to the social network's latest transparency reports, 50% of this content was flagged in the second quarter of 2021 and 41% during the third quarter of the year. In Kenya, already 68% of children have access to the Internet. It has emerged that many children in Africa are subjected to crime, engage in sexual activities, and are kidnapped by strangers who lure them on social media. Agnes Mwendwa is a young girl and the chairperson of pro-children forum called the Kenya Children's Assembly in Nairobi County. She asks the government to protect children from online harm. Children need to be given special online protection, which is mainly through equipping them with the necessary information and knowledge on how to serve safely online. Children must fully know and understand how online platforms operate for their own safety. My fellow children, it is important to note that some strangers online are not good visual as they discuss themselves. Analysts say spending more time on the Internet increases risk and threats of harm to children. UNICEF's representative for Kenya, Maniza Zaman, says a child growing up without a dedicated caregiver is a threat to their development. The risk of online sexual exploitation is also rising, making it even more urgent to invest in children's online safety and protection. As we all know, used well, the internet is a powerful tool to connect, to learn, to engage in a creative and empowering way. The increased risk of harm which the online world brings now cannot be ignored. Margaret Kobia is the Kenya's Cabinet Secretary for Public Service, Gender, Senior Citizens Affairs and Special Program. She says that the government guarantees the safety of children against online abuse. To realize the full implementation of the National Care Reform Strategy and the National Plan of Action for Children in Kenya, I really look forward to a greater collaboration between among various government agencies, faith-based organizations, civil society. I believe through a coordinated institutional framework, we can hold each other accountable. At least 14% of children in Kenya have met strangers online without the company of an adult, making it risky for most of them. Eunice Kilundo from Child Fund Kenya says online child sexual exploitation and abuse of children 
have been rampant. According to the 2021 Disrupting Harm in Kenya report, over 50% of surveyed frontline workers believe cases go unreported due to low awareness of reporting mechanisms. 61% of surveyed children uh, in the Disrupting Harm report aged between 12 and 17 years old were not sure where to get support if they experienced sexual abuse. During the launch, it was established that there is a discrimination against orphans and others living in children's or foster homes, especially when they try to reintegrate into the society. According to a report on ending violence against children, Africa has the highest rates of child neglect in the world, with nearly 42% of girls and 40% of boys being neglected by their caregivers. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. Even as South Africa attracts thousands of African migrants facing hunger in their countries, studies show that the country is categorized as food insecure. One in ten people go hungry every day. The nation is plagued by both extremes of malnutrition, undernourishment, and overnutrition. In Johannesburg, Tuso Kumalo spoke to experts to find out how the country finds itself in this position. According to Statistics South Africa, in 2020, 10% of children lived in families that reported hunger. This follows a 2016 South Africa Demographic and Health Survey that showed that 27% of children in South Africa experienced stunted growth, meaning their physical development was way below their age, which often is a result of poor nutrition. Adults are not spared from hunger, with reports showing that one in ten people go hungry every day. Dr. Bianca Chigubu, a labor relations and educational sociologist and lecturer at South Africa's University of Fort Hare, told VOA that there are several contributing factors to the country's hunger levels. And she says the COVID-19 pandemic made things worse. Unemployment, underemployment, indecent work, an unstable and uh, unsustainable labor market, snail-paced job creation, and a lack of citizen involvement in the country's local food economy. On the other side, the country is dealing with serious challenges of overweight and obesity. The number of overweight or obese children sits at 13%, making it double the global prevalence of 5.6%. More than 40% of women aged between 15 and 24 are either overweight or obese. The number is worse for the women aged 45 to 54, as it is now at over 80%. The problem, nutrition experts say, is that while the poor go hungry, those who have gone up the economic ladder find themselves having more to eat than they need. Frenji Materechera, a food security specialist, told VOA that inequality could be the reason for this contradiction. This is interesting because South Africa nationally is said to be food secure, whereas when you zoom into a more 
localized level, like at a household level, it is said to be food insecure. AgriSA is an organization supporting farmers. The group's executive director, Christo van der Ride, has told VOA that the recent share increases in fuel costs could see hunger increase as some farmers may struggle to stay in business. Farmers have faced huge price spikes in terms of diesel, but also fertilizer, herbicide, seeds, and the purchasing of technologies and so forth. Spike in the labor cost as well as electricity cost. And that in itself placed farmers and farming production under huge pressure. He says the government needs to take swift action to help farmers so they can keep producing food. Under the Sustainable Development Goals, the United Nations has set 2030 as the target for all countries to end hunger and provide food to all people. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. As much of the world is shunning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, Zimbabwe this month hosted Russia's third highest ranking official. Anli says Zimbabwe is looking to Russia for fuel as well as cooking oil and wheat that it used to get from Ukraine while Russia has its eyes on Zimbabwe's minerals. Columbus Mavungo reports from Harare in Zimbabwe. During a visit to Zimbabwe last week, Valentina Ivanovan Matienko, chairperson of the Federation Council of Russia, said Moscow would improve trade relations between the two countries given that the West was shunning them. Alexander Rusero, who heads international relations studies at Africa University in Zimbabwe, says the nation's ties with Russia are both ideological and historical. He says the relationship goes back to when Russia supplied arms to the now ruling ZANPF party as it fought for Zimbabwe's independence in the late 1970s. Russia later vetoed proposed UN sanctions on Zimbabwe in 2008 when the late President Robert Mugabe won re-election through vote-rigging and heavy-handed intimidation. And given the realities, Zimbabwe is perceived as a pariah state. It is perceived as an outpost of tyranny by the Western international community and by the United States, which is currently in an antagonistic relationship with uh, Russia. So Zimbabwe, historically and ideologically, will be leaned more to Russia and China than to the Western international community. Harare-based independent political commentator Joyce Nguenya says Russia has an interest in Zimbabwe's minerals such as gold and platinum. And not to mention the you know the business uh, you know arrangements and relations that have been established in the past uh, you know uh, two decades. So it is not realistic to expect any drastic change of a policy uh, between Zimbabwe and Russia on the basis of Ukraine war. It is important to condemn invasions of any country, but uh, unfortunately, international politics also works uh, in terms of self-interest and self-preservation. And for ED, this is absolute self-preservation. Zimbabwe depends on Russia and Ukraine for about 65% of its imported wheat. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the price of bread and flour in the country has increased drastically as exports from the war zone have dried up. Tafazom Sarara is the chairman of Grain Millers Association of Zimbabwe, which is in charge of importing grain. We have been affected. We are working with the, with the government to bring in some more wheat. 
We need wheat as soon as possible. The commodity prices are going up. Uh, some of our wheat products, such as bread, going up. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin said he considered Africa friendly and would make efforts to ensure goods in shortage reach the continent. That would certainly be good news for countries like Zimbabwe, which, even in the best of times, struggles to feed its population. Columbus Bavungam for VOA News, Harare, Zimbabwe. A training for eight wildlife veterinarians from five African countries in hands-on wildlife immobilization took place in Namibia recently. Stephanie Fennessy, a spokesperson for the Giraffe Conservation Foundation, which helped host the training, spoke to Ricky Shryok about the needs for more training for wildlife veterinarians in certain regions of the continent. We work in these countries, we often work with veterinarians. And what we have realized is that there is a lot of wildlife veterinary capacity in southern Africa, so here in Namibia and South Africa and Zimbabwe, but in a lot of the other countries in Africa, there is a lot of very capable vets, but they have limited experience in dealing with wildlife. So what we have done historically, and many other NGOs do, we bring expertise from southern Africa to other countries to work with the local vets and train them there. But we thought that is not really a long-term sustainable solution. It would be much better to train veterinarians from Central, East and West Africa and have experts in those countries that we can then work with. What were some of the personal experiences that you saw unfold during the training? Yeah, so the idea was to, to bring some young and aspiring African vets together for them to build some ne- networks and also to have mentorship. So we invited several uh, Namibian and a South African very experienced wildlife vet to work with these young guys uh, in a very collaborative way. So it wasn't that we one person was teaching, but we were all before each immobilization, the whole group discussed how to approach this, what drug regimes to use and how to go about it. One of the young vets was in charge of the whole operation, but he was backstopped by an experienced vet. And then afterwards, we again as a group discussed everything that happened, what went wrong, what went really well, what could have done be done differently. So it was a really sharing environment. And it's really important to say that everyone left their egos at home and we all work collaboratively for the best outcomes for conservation. What is the combination of modern technology and also mentalities that have actually existed for generations toward conservation. Yeah, so giraffe occur in in 20 or 21 countries in Africa and the problems their threats are different in every single country. So there is not just one solution to saving giraffe in Africa. But what our experience has obviously shown is that it's really important to to work with local people and that giraffe can ultimately only be saved by the people who actually live with giraffe or share their living space with giraffe. So that is one of the approaches. So we as GCF, we really see us as a a network organization. We, We don't want to do all the work by ourselves. We work with local partners, international partners, and we really see our role in bringing people together. Um, and using the best data, the best information and the best available technology at the moment. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us.
For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and on YouTube. We are also on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America.